You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. We're now in the period between Yom Ba'atzma'ut, Israel and Independence Day, and Yom Yerushalayim, the day that Israel became the... uh, conquerors of the city of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem became a fully Jewish city for the first time since the destruction of the Second Temple. Now, this is a very uh, happy occasion, of course. It's celebrated in in Jerusalem, and for some reason or other, which I can't explain, it's not quite celebrated in the rest of the country as much as I think it should be. The very fact that Jerusalem has become under Jewish sovereignty after almost two millennia is something that should be celebrated by the entire country, not just those of us who live in Jerusalem. At any rate, uh, I want to say a few things about what's happened in Israel in the years since Israel was created. I came to live in Israel in September 1969. Now, look at the uh, situation then. The Israel there was a poor, largely agrarian country. The major exports were phosphates from the Dead Sea and oranges from the coastal plain. There was absolutely no high tech to speak of. There was little central heating, or even the falafel was bad. And there were very few foreign friends of the state of Israel. But China and India, for example, which represent half of humanity, were hostile countries, as, as were the Soviet Union and the oldest, the, uh, the uh, countries in Eastern Europe that were under the influence or under the control of the Soviet Union. The, Union. the relations with South America were best chilly. And there was virtually non-existent relations with sub-Saharan Africa. Now, we did have warm ties with the United States, but we did not have a strategic alliance. As a matter of fact, in those days, President Gerald Ford had recently threatened to cut off aid to Israel unless it gave away territory for peace. The Israeli population at that time numbered about 3 million. The, and at that time, maybe 3 million Jews were also trapped behind behind the Iron Curtain, denied, denied the rights to make Aliyah or even to study Hebrew. And many Jews, unfortunately, were uh, in like, Siberian labor camps. And the Jews of Ethiopia were cut off from Israel apparently indefinitely. So in those years, Israel was struggled. Peace was nowhere in sight, not with Egypt, Jordan, certainly not with Morocco or Bahrain or United Emirates. Israel at that time was not even 30 years old. The state of Israel appeared at that time to be all all but passé. Things were bad all around. Yet, for all the hardships, Israelis were basically optimistic. 
they could always point out the lights. There are some things, for example, it's odd enough we don't remember these things today. Uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv won the European Cup Championship in 1977. Um, Israel entered in the Eurovision Song Contest. And uh, in 1977, the Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat, came uh, holding out a hope for peace with the largest and most powerful neighbor, Egypt. And the, um, it, 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 that was the situation then. That in the, uh, it, interesting, uh, many of us were inspired to come here. here the uh, and it, a lot of there were very few American people coming to live in this, and there still are very few Americans. The uh, but interesting, if you really look at it in historical perspective, this is a country founded almost three years to the date after the end of the Holocaust. The a country that had any natural resources, there there was a common hardly a common culture, even a language to unite the immigrant population. It was a country surrounded by enemies who proclaimed their determination to destroy Israel. Now, this same Israel revived the Hebrew language, elevated Jewish learning, created world-class universities, and a universal health care system. We have a citizen army, and along with the U.S., Canada, and Australia, became one of the handful of nations never to have known a moan of non-democratic governments. I have complaints about the Israeli government. I don't like the electoral system, but we are a democratic country. We vote to choose which parties will be in our Knesset. So now. And nearly a century, and a, nearly a half a century has passed since I got here. Many, what would, what would happen here, and I've witnessed it, was pretty much what you'd call a miraculous. There was a exodus of nearly a million Jews from the former Soviet bloc, and tens of of thousands of Jews from Ethiopia. They were the transformation of Israel from an agricultural country to a global technical power with a per capita GDP that surpassed that of Britain, France, and Germany. We have strong relations with India, China, countries of Eastern Europe, Africa, and South America. Israel and America today enjoy a deep and multifaceted strategic alliance that includes intelligence sharing, systems development, and joint maneuvers. Peace has been achieved with Egypt, Jordan, and the Ab and there are also Arab countries who have signed the so-called Abraham Accords. Over the course of the last 50 years, Israel has emerged as close to being the world's largest Jewish community. 
we have music and arts. We have famous television series that we export. We have high-class restaurants, particularly in Tel Aviv. Thanks to pioneering processes of desalinization and reclamation, water, once dangerously scarce, now flows freely and refreshingly from the faucets here in Israel. And of all the peoples on earth, Israel's population, I believe, are among the healthiest and the happiest, according to all the recent uh, researches that have been done. On the other hand, on the negative side, in these years since I've lived in Israel, we've had a number of wars, we have a number of actually countless terrorist attacks, we've had economic crises, and we've had political upheavals. We had five elections in less than three years. And the there are still divisions between those living in the center of the country, in the area, let's say, between uh, Haifa in the north and Gadara in the south, and there are those living on the peripheries. There's, there's a division. There's a division between Jews from Western countries and from Eastern countries. We still have a problem of poverty. Uh, we have a division between religious and secular Jews, and of course between Jews and Arabs. The Palestinian issue and the controversies, including Jewish settlements and Israel's defensive policies, the state of Jerusalem, the, these are problems that often obscure Israel's many, many achievements. The, though never, never less isolated diplomatically, the Israel remains the only country whose legitimacy is routinely denied, particularly on campuses in the United States. States. Their, uh, the hatred of Jews uh, uh, has morphed into hatred of the Jewish state. These are the negative things that have happened since the state of Israel was founded. There are people who are anti-Semitic, and they, they say, no, I'm, I, I, I'm not anti-Semitic. I just don't like the state of, state of Israel for one reason or, on, or another. So now we have just passed our 75th birthday. The truth of the matter is that the state of Israel confronts what is arguably its most dangerous threats. And, but these threats, I really think, are overwhelmingly internal. We have a strong army that takes care of our external threats. The right in a class couple months, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are taking to the streets to demonstrate for and against the government over the question of how they will change the way the Supreme Court judge judges are chosen. The um, and now that we have ultra orthodox um, ultra orthodox. Uh, 
parties in the uh, Knesset, part of the government, they've signed agreements with the Likud that will deprive many of their students of even the most basic modern education. That, that is an extremely strong issue. Now, we have had an instance, for example, of numbers of demonstrators refusing to report for reserve duty or even planning to leave the country. There's something basically wrong in the education of these people who are willing not to do reserve duty or to leave the country because of an issue over the Supreme Court. And people called each other names, they called each other anarchists and traitors and so forth. The, uh, and the, it, it's, a, it's a bad situation. Israelis clash with one another. We have the same time foreign um, enemies like Iran were working on making a nuclear bomb that could actually wipe the state of Israel off the map with just a couple of bombs. So one can say the, uh, that this situation, despite all the modernity and all the accomplishments, which are unbelievable, you can say that there is a, a shadow of doubt over the future of the country. The, uh, what brought people to Israel in the first place, like myself, was the, the I believe, something that is very Jewish, which is an, an almost superhuman ability to overcome adversity and for accomplishing the possible. I remember the many dark times our country has had since I came here in 1969. And I see every time how Israelis have found the strength to overcome these things. So that that's really interesting that 75 years, which is really a, a blip in history, you look back to what the country was like 75 years ago. We had no real air force. The army was, was you know, was a, a makeshift army almost. And we've, we have achieved what we have achieved in that period of time beyond our wildest uh, dreams, really. And it took very hard work. So using that kind of energy that brought us to where we are today, we should use that energy to overcome the political problems that we have right now. The major problems we have in Israel are the internal political problems. To reach a stage where the problems are internal and not external is very much of accomplishment for a country that was threatened to be destroyed when it came into existence. We've taken care, thank God, of that problem. Our problem is how we deal with ourselves. And so many, so many accomplishments that don't make the headlines, I tried to collect them for this program. Uh, for example, 
There is a new observatory in the Negev that will house the most powerful survey satellites said to be three times more powerful than any other existing tele telescope. This, um, it's interesting, you don't see this in the headlines. I had to go through all kinds of newspapers and magazines to get to collect this information. The uh, Israelis have a lifespan of an average of 82.49 years. The Interestingly enough, Israel has signed an agreement for collaboration on the study of longevity with the World Community of Longevity, which is based on all places in Sardinia, which has the highest percentage of men aged 100 and over. I don't think the listeners knew that. I didn't know that till I saw it in an article. Sardinia, if you have to look it up on a map, has the, the highest percentage of men aged 100 and over. So the uh, it's really it's really remarkable the uh, the, the 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 accomplishment made uh, by Israel in this period of time is absolutely mind-boggling. And I have a list. I don't want to bore the listeners. And I'll, I'll give you another example that's not in the headlines. The the uh, musical The Fiddler on the Roof uh, appeared in Hebrew in 1965, and it's still playing in Israel, where everyone understands the references and appreciates the nuances and laughs at the joke. The Israeli star Chaim Topo passed away about a month ago, beat out Frank Sinatra, Danny Kaye, and Richard Burton for the movie role. He also played the character of Salah Shabbati in a 1964 film called Salah, Salah Shabbati. And it was just found out that, that Chaim Topol, a famous Israeli star who appeared on the stage thousands and thousands of times, had just found out from his family, he also worked for the Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service. That was a real shock. It was in the newspaper about a week ago. Uh, the, uh, about a week ago. The, and it's it, interesting. I'll just give it one other thing because it's, it, it's the things that go into the head, don't get into the headlines. They're way below the headlines, but it's interesting. For example, the Israeli TV series called Fauda, F-A-U-D-A, is the number one Netflix program in Lebanon and the United Arab Emirates. It ranks second in Qatar and is among the top ten most viewed Netflix shows in Turkey, Morocco, and Jordan. And by the word, uh, the word food means chaos. So these are just some of the things that no one could have dreamed of 75 years ago. And the things that I mentioned in the last few minutes are things that don't get into the headlines here. I had to search for this information, 
but I wanted to share it with the listeners. It's our 75th anniversary, and we've made accomplishments that no country in the world compared to. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to start this uh, segment of program by saying a few words uh, concerning a visiting delegation of uh, congressional members of the United States, a 19-member bipartisan congressional delegation visited uh, this week in Israel, and right after landing at Ben-Gurion Airport, they went straight to the Western Wall in the old city of Jerusalem, on Sunday. They were led by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, uh, who, who, by the way, this was not his first time he's prayed at the site. Interestingly enough, visits, visits to the Israel and to the Western Wall have become increasingly routine among American politicians particularly since President Trump came here uh, while he was in office. It's interesting, by the way, The uh, I live, my apartment is between the King David Hotel and the home of Israel's president. So most of these foreign dignitaries stay at the uh, King David. They generally visit the president president. So as a consequence, they drive by my home. It's a very short distance. It's probably a uh, no more than a five-minute drive from the King David Hotel to the home of Israel's president. And uh, interestingly enough, of course, when these things happen, uh, the whole street is uh, lined with guards. We're not permitted to go outside and stand on the sidewalk if you want to see the procession go by, we have to watch from our porches or from our windows. And interestingly enough, also, uh, and I've sort of become accustomed to these things, the procession, let's say bringing a foreign dignitary, uh, it generally makes up, made up of no less than approximately 10 cars. Some are black limousines and some are obviously police cars and some are emergency vehicles. And the fact that they have a number of black uh, limousines is interesting because you never know which one contains the important person. So also, the uh, a short distance of where I live is a place where it's easy for a helicopter to land. And often when these dignitaries come, they come by helicopter and immediately they, they go to the either the hotel or to the home of the president. And uh, so they go past our street. 
So it's interesting, by the way, on a personal level, whenever we have one of these foreign vis visitor, visitors of any importance, sort of inconvenient, inconvenient for the local residents like myself, who uh, on one hand we can't go outside, and on the other hand we want to take a look to see who this person is or what. Generally, by the way, when these foreign visitors come, these the um, the cars carrying the group all have on the uh, fenders. They have the um, the flag of the visiting country. So it's, it's an interesting thing to see. At any rate, uh, the uh, this. Um, Congressional group came from the United States. They went right away to the uh, temple. Now it turned out the um, the uh, McCarthy, who's the now the Speaker of the House, has visited Israel many times and is known to be a strong supporter of the Jewish state. And he was uh, going. To, I think uh, yesterday he spoke the um, address the Knesset uh, plenum on. It, making him only the second House Speaker to do so. And, and also, this is McCarthy's first foreign trip abroad since he became Speaker back in January. So his visit is billed as a celebration of the U.S.-Israel ties over the last 75 years as, and as an important step in laying the foundation for the next 75 years, the relationship between the two countries. So the, all that is very nice. Now, Interestingly enough, there is no doubt that one of the main pillars uh, the uh, be in the extraordinary relationship between Israel and the United States over the last 75 years has always been its bipartisan, bipartisan nature. This group that came now, these 19 members of Congress, was a bipartisan group, including both Republicans um, and uh, Democrats. So regardless of the leaders at the helm of the respective countries, and despite periods of tension and disagreement, the questions of whether the U.S. is led by a Democrat or Republican administration, and whether the makeup of Israel's coalition has been secondary to the fundamental bond and the value shared by Israel and the United States. Israel is the only democ real democracy in the Middle East. And for decades, polls taken in the U.S. showed overwhelming support for Israel across party lines. However, there's a bit of a tension today. Polls taken over the last two years have shown a widening gap between Americans who identify as Republicans and those who align themselves as Democrats and their feelings toward Israel. The specific findings vary, but the conclusion is the same. Right now, Republicans are significantly more supportive from, uh, than Democrats are of Israel, while Democrats are now more sympathetic to the Palestinians than they are to Israel. And the numbers are really big differences. So that is a worrisome split, and there is a very polarized political environment that has developed in the United States. So uh, now it's a the simple act 
of a prime minister uh, in um, Israel being hosting uh, uh, by American president, it's not so simple anymore. The American president has not invited uh, our prime minister since he took office several months ago. So the, the simple act of a standing prime minister hosting a prominent U.S. elected representative presents a sort of a diplomatic problem. In Israel, and particularly Prime Minister Netanyahu, is in a very sensitive position. The And this is the season when high-profile delegations from the United States are visiting Israel. For example, last week, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis visited Israel. He, did, he appeared... Uh, on several uh, different occasions here, the uh, and uh, the, the, something had was opened here called the Museum of Tolerance, and he spoke here. Now, Ron DeSantis uh, is could well be the Republican candidate for presidency next year. <coughs> now, interest also last week. Twelve Democrats from Congress uh, were an official visit, uh, which both marked uh, marked both Remembrance Day and Independence Day last week. And uh, now we have this bipartisan uh, group headed by the the House Speaker. By the way, McCarthy is the only only the second House Speaker to address the Knesset. The last time a House Speaker addressed the Knesset was in 1998, when the House Speaker was Newt Gingrich. So Israel has to sort of walk a tightrope of hosting supporters of Israel whose constituents despise each other. And uh, it's it's a tough task now because the Democrats and the Republicans are now are pretty much at each other's throat. And here we have uh, a bipartisan group comes here to, to visit Israel. The, uh, the, it, that's why, for example... Uh, Netanyahu often met with DeSantis, but DeSantis is a possible uh, candidate for president next year, so Netanyahu's office played down the visit. For example, generally when uh, a, a high-level foreign uh, person comes to Israel, they have a joint statement or photographs issued by a prime minister's office, and this time they didn't do that. The, uh, the it's interesting. The, the media reported here that Netanyahu didn't publicize the meeting because they're afraid about antagonizing both a Republican uh, possible candidate, President uh, former President Trump, and at the same time not antagonizing Joe Biden, the present president. So, so Israel is sort of walking a tightrope when 
uh, Democrats and Republicans show up in Israel. And meanwhile, Netanyahu was wait, waiting for an invitation to meet Biden in the White House, and he can't be seen, risk being seen as promoting one of Trump's potential opponents for the Republican nomination. So it's really a tricky situation. So it could well be that here you have, we're visited by DeSantis, who's an influential newsmaker, and his in, a good chance his influence will grow, and he might become the next um, uh, candidate for president on the Republican ticket. No, so whenever you host somebody like that, uh, it's it's a tough situation. The notion that, for example, providing DeSantis with a platform or greeting him at the prime minister's office is grounds for accusations of playing favorites uh, uh, for a upcoming possible candidate for the American presidency. So... This is, it's tough, but it really demonstrates how strained and divisive the political discourse in the United States has become. And Israel has to walk a tightrope in not antagonizing anybody in either party. I think it can be said safely, our prime minister is an experienced and clever politician, and... um, We can be sure, I think, and I hope, that Netanyahu has internalized the principle that an Israeli leader can't be perceived as siding with a particular party. In the past, uh, Netanyahu was known to be siding pretty much with the Republicans, and he's moved away from that position. Many Democrats during the Trump years felt that Netanyahu was a Trump supporter. The uh, the personalities of uh, Netanyahu and Trump became intertwined. There were a lot of pictures of them together. And uh, back during the time of the Obama administration, when Israel and the United States were often at odds, I remember back in uh, 2015, the um, when the um, our our uh, prime minister, of course, in our government, was at odds with the American um, attitude, uh, 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 their soft attitude toward Iran. And uh, Netanyahu was invited to speak in Congress. There were those who said that uh, he shouldn't go. He was invited by a uh, by the Speaker of the House, and uh, he accepted the invitation. There was a lot of tension here about whether or not Netanyahu should accept the invitation, since the Congress at that time was at odds with the administration. And by showing up at Congress, it looked like that our prime minister was taking his side. So it's pretty much of a hot potato. So it is absolutely of prime importance that the Israel must remain above the arguments that are taking place in the United States. And our leaders should watch their words 
and do whatever they can to prevent support for the Jewish state from turning into a hot potato issue between the parties in the United States. So, because if it does, what will happen is that support for Israel by America, many Americans will will force a lot of Americans to choose sides based on their own party affiliation. (coughs) So our leaders have a very ticklish situation in how they treat members of Congress who come here to visit Israel. Obviously, they have to be open and they have to be welcoming. But you have to really watch every word they say, not to give the impression that they favor one side over the other. So so it's interesting how you have uh, political tension in the United States, and Israel has to step gingerly not to get involved in that issue. There is, <laughs> there is no doubt. The material and political support of the United States is an essential pillar in the national security of Israel. The common wisdom is that the special relationship between the United States and Israel stands on three important legs. One is the commonality of values. We are a democracy. The only one in the Middle East, we are a democracy like the United States is. Second, the influence of Israel's friends in the American political system to help Israel. And third, Israel's strategic value for an American national interest. These things cannot be underestimated. But the change in the attitude of American administrations toward Israel was mainly a result of the change in seeing Israel as a strategic asset. The turning point occurred after Israel's victory in the Six-Day War back in 1967 because Israel's victory was over countries who were clients of the Soviet Union. Since Israel was important to the U.S. during the Cold War, it got preferential treatment. The shared values and support of American public opinion really really grew sky high after 1967. So there's a complex structure today of cooperation between the U.S. and Israel. Now, by the way, there were several times when Israel really showed that it was a friend of the states when there was a big crisis in Jordan back in 1970. Now, there is a new international reality now after the disintegration of the Soviet Union. It's not clear whether the alliance between the United States and Israel will continue in the format created during the Cold War. 
Yet a new enemy threatened the U.S., which is radical Islam, that is resorts to terrorism against the United States and the West. So in this new reality, Israel has become an ally because of experience in anti-terrorist activity, its familiarity with the Arab and Muslim world, and its intelligence-gathering capability in many parts of the Muslim world. The, the what but there's, there's, there's something has happened in the meantime. The United States, because it pulled out of Afghanistan, uh, it it's not the same United States that the used to be. So uh it nor nor is Iran's aggressive policies in the Middle East, nor its nuclear program are perceived as a significant security threat to the U.S., but it is a security threat to Israel. So the Middle East has become less important to Washington because the U.S. is becoming an energy exporter and a growing domestic pressures to switch to green energy. Above all, the U.S. turns its attention to a new strategic challenge, which is the rise of China. The most prominent feature of the new international system is not a competition between Russia and the United States, but between China and the United States. The question is, where does Israel fit into this? Again, I'm not a, an expert on uh, worldwide political realities, but I think it's important for the list to keep in mind that things that have changed uh, overseas affect Israel tremendously. Russia was once the power to threaten the United States, and now it's China. And Israel has relations with both those countries, and it, it's very important that our uh, um our politicians and our our uh, statesmen know how to uh, to tread along this very very sensitive line. So a visit of a lot of American uh, congressmen to the United States of the United States Israel this week is a good thing, but it also has to be handled carefully. Just some thoughts about this uh, very complex issue. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to start this uh, segment of the program by talking a little bit about history and how it uh, can affect us if we learn from it. I came across a book uh, called The Rise and Decline of Civilizations. It's written by a gentleman named Shalom Solomon Wald, and uh, he's pretty much of an expert. He's a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, and uh, I want to share with the listeners some of the things I learned from it, because I think they're important. Give you some perspective. He spoke about the two Jewish states of antiquity. Uh, there were two Jewish states. I'll get to that in a moment. The first one split into two parts and never reunited, and the other lost its independence to foreigners. 
Now, what is the first one? When the the Jews set up uh, a, a monarch in Israel, they had a King Saul, King David, and a King Solomon. They're all mentioned in various parts of the Bible. Uh, and that, that lasted not much longer than 100 years. After the uh, death of Solomon, the kingdom split. Now, the Hasmonean dynasty, the Hasmoneans, these are the ones that we celebrate on Hanukkah. They kicked out the uh, Greek invaders, and they took independence, and they actually ruled independently from the year 140 BCE to 63 BCE. That was 77 years, after which they were conquered by Rome, and both the two Jewish independent states were ruined not by foreign enemies, but by domestic infighting. And so the and the, the sons of Solomon, uh, the son of Solomon uh, had uh, took issue with another guy who was uh, Solomon's uh, general. And that caused the split of the empire. And the Hasmonean dynasty broke up when the brothers of the Hasmonean family didn't get along with each other. So it was internal difficulty that brought the problems. So the question is, is anything comparable happening today? Uh, we've had our independence for 75 years. And it's interesting that 70 years, or to 80 years roughly, plus or minus two or three years, has universally been considered to be the lifespan of three generations. So 80 years is like three generations. Now, their sequence is thought to follow a regular a pattern, uh, according to this historian Wald. He said the first generation creates, the second generation maintains, and the third or fourth generation unfortunately destroys. And this model of thought can be found among historians and novelists. For example, there was an Arab historian named Ibn Khaldun back in the uh, 14th century and he said that civilizations are created by a first royal dynasty, maintained by a second royal dynasty, and wrecked by the third uh, the, uh, royal dynasty. Uh, further on in time, there was a book, a book, a Nobel Prize for winning book called Buddenbrooks, written in 1901 by Thomas Mann, Interesting story, I recommend it. It tells a story of a merchant family that rises to wealth and rises to fame in one generation, preserves its position during the second generation, declines in the third, and collapses in the fourth. So you have uh, 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 three or four generations until things collapse. So it's sort of historically, it's become pretty much of a milestone history. Now, that's what's been written about history. Let, let's take a, a look. Let's take a look at the contemporary world. 
The 20th century saw the birth of many new nation states. The most important where the Soviet Union came into being in 1922. The Turkish Republic came into being in 1923. The Republic of India in 1947. And the People's Republic of China in 1949. And Israel that came into being in 1948. Now, all five... Uh, the Soviet Union, the Turkish Republic, the Republic of India, People's Republic of China, the State of Israel, reached a historical turning point after approximately three generations. Two of them did not cross successfully. The USSR collapsed in 1991 after 69 years, and Turkey, which was founded as a secular country, turned into an Islamic state in 2003 after 80 years, and that's the way it is today. Now, two of these countries did manage to pass the turning point and seem to be doing well. The Republic of India is secular, and began to be transformed into a Hindu state in 2014 after 67 years, but hasn't reached that yet. And China re-elected its ruling president in 2022 for an unlimited tenure. So that that's a break with China's most fundamental governance principle since Mao, 73 years after the People's Republic founding. And Israel now has slipped into its deepest political crisis in its 75th year. So Israel is in the middle between the two groups, some of which stopped being what they were, the others which are maintaining what they are, and Israel could go either way. That's a very interesting historical point. So we can ask ourselves, is it purely a coincidence that five different nation-states established in the 20th century amassed problems that culminated in crisis or transformation? These transformations occurred or started 69 or 67 or 80 or 73 or 75 years after the foundation of these states. So the question we have to ask is, does does this indicate an unwritten three-generation rule? Now, a different mix of reasons explains what happened to those these countries. The three appear everywhere. There's a question. There's a crisis of governance, a crisis of leadership, a crisis of the economy. And there is really a crisis of internal cohesion, and that's really a big one. So the Soviets failed by all three criteria. They had incompetent leadership, economic stagnation, the faster democrat, the the a very uh, a, the non-Russian speaking citizens in Russia grew faster than the Russian speakers, 
And these non-Russian speakers uh, were indifferent or hostile to continued Russian rule. In the end, they can constitute about 40% or more of the Soviet population, more than the country's unity could accommodate, and the Soviet Union fell apart. Now, India, by contrast, strengthened according to the same criteria. Prime Minister Modi's Hindu revolution, which was really a quiet revolution, ushered in one of the longest periods of stability in modern Indian history and therefore increased the country's cohesion while the economy kept growing, which is the opposite of what happened in the Soviet Union. Now, what about China? China now has a leader whose power is more unlimited than that of any of his predecessors. The economy underpinning China's global status will soon be the largest economy in the world. So there seems to be a national cohesion there, even though they step on a lot of people. Now, look at Turkey. The Turkey demonstrates the dangerous dangers of a serious leadership problem. The Islamization started in Turkey around the turn of the century, uh, about around 2003, and a lot of Turks welcomed that. They were pretty much, a lot of people in Turkey were alienated from the ruling secular elites. What happened was when President Erdogan became a uh, dictatorial, he threatened both national cohesion and economic stability. The, um, the, as for the Turks, Instead of having a retired prime minister whom history would have judged to be one of the ablest and most effective politicians of a generation, they're now, sat, now saddled with a forever president whose only trick is to present, present himself to the, to, as a solution to the crises that he himself made. So... Uh, this would sort of sound familiar to many Israelis because they've heard exactly the same about another controversial leader much closer to home, Netanyahu. The problem here is one of leadership. So according to this uh, this fellow named Shalom, uh, Shalom Wald, in his book, um, who wrote Rise and Declines of Civilization, he says there are three core issues and a few specific Israeli problems are apparent. First of all, leadership. There is no legal time limit to an Israeli prime minister's hold on office. This explains many of, of Netanyahu's political and personal choices. They are meant to guarantee the longest possible rule. There are those who say that Netanyahu step aside and should let somebody else lead the Likud, but he isn't having any of that. 
When this coincides with proposals to reduce the power of the judiciary in favor of the executive branch, which is what's happening now in Israel, some fear that the door is opening to dictatorship or monarchy. That is one of the basic problems of the um, attempt now to change the power of the judiciary. And, and in a sense, we can look to Turkey as, as a caution. A large proportion of Israeli electorate is critical of the prime minister's overhaul initiative to change the power of the Supreme Court and believes that he has overstayed his welcome as prime minister. So perhaps Israel's top leader should be limited by law to a maximum term. So there's a problem of leadership. There's another problem of economic power. Strategic power cannot be separated from economic power. China is living proof. For Israel, economic power is its high-tech and military innovation. Israel has no basic uh, natural resources, and everything depends on high-tech and military innovation, which depend entirely on hospitable international, political, financial, and export environments, and an advanced scientific and technological prowess at home. Diminishing any of these others, uh, any of these could jeopardize Israel's survival. A, a part of the Israeli public and its political representatives ignore these links because they have other priorities. These are the sectors whose living standards will suffer most if the current turmoil is not resolved. Hopefully, we, we are in a crisis now. There's no two ways about it. And hopefully people will settle back and look and, and come to some kind of compromise because they have to have national cohesion. And if you look at the makeup of the Israeli population, you find something very interesting. And just over 20 years from now, the Haredim will constitute more than 30% of Israel's population, and Arabs will account for more than 20%. So together, that's more than 40%, um, and and that's a lot. Thirty, we're talking a lot. And what happened in Russia when when they when they had forty percent of non-Russians, they ended up by driving the USSR to extinction. So comparing anti-Zionist Haredim to anti-Soviet Ukrainians and Lithuanians and other breakaway nationalists may seem far-fetched. What makes them comparable is their alienation from the nation-state in which they are living. The problem we have now is that there is a alienation of many of the Haredim and certainly the Arabs from the nation-state of Israel. Most Arabs will work and will likely face no obligation to help defend the country. 
This is the way it's been since Israel was founded. Arabs are not drafted into the army. There are those who argue, and I among them, they should do national service in the Arab community. But that's another story. The uh, now this is similar to the to the twenty percent of Muslim population in India who are not regarded as a major threat to cohesion. Israel's national cohesion can be preserved if a minority of citizens and Haredim who demand exemption from laws governing a majority does not exceed much more than ten percent, which is the current situation. In other words, those who demand exemption from laws governing the majority, which in other words the Arabs and the Hash and the Haredim are about ten percent of the population right now, and Israel can cope with that. But it cannot cope with a population that comprises more than thirty percent that doesn't serve in the army. If Haredi participation in the nation's economy and defense does not increase much faster than usual, Israel will likely lack the economic, scientific, and military strength, and perhaps even the moral willpower to confront the challenges it will have to face as it approaches its hundredth birthday. Public awareness of this danger is growing. Sooner or later, it may coalesce into political action. In other words, it is really important that at least the Haredim become part of the national consensus, otherwise the country is really in danger. You cannot have a part of the population which simply doesn't share the burden of other parts of the population. Now, obviously, the Arabs are a special case. We cannot expect the Arabs to fight against, essentially, their brethren. That, that's a whole story unto itself. But it is, it, it is really important for a lot of reasons, but particularly for national cohesion, that Haredi become... To begin to take to take up the burden of military duty like the mainstream population does. So the question of Haredim joining the army has been a, a problem since the state uh, was first founded. Back in 1948, there were uh, something like 400 yeshiva students and Ben-Gurion realized that in order to continue Judaism, it's important that they maintain the yeshivas and Jewish education. Uh, that There were 400 at that time. Today there are tens of thousands. And although obviously education and Torah is important, really important, but somehow those they, these people who study Torah should also carry some of the burden of military defense and things of that nature in order to maintain our society. We are essentially approaching a time of crisis. Now, I don't like to sound uh, uh, like, uh, you know, non-optimistic or pessimistic, 
But this is this is the reality we are facing now, as I understand it. So I just want to share my thoughts with the listeners. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Hi, you're back again with Jay Shapiro. Before I uh, go into the subject matter that I want to discuss in this last segment of the program, I want to mention something about sending mail to me. Over the years, uh, I've tried to encourage my listeners to respond to me. Unfortunately, I uh, haven't often repeated what my email address is so that you can write to me. Last week, I indeed mentioned my email address And uh, I received a number of responses from different people, primarily in the United States. So I realized that um, putting my address, announcing my address is important. It allows people to send me their thoughts, whether they agree with me or disagree with me, or whether they wish to discuss any particular subject in Jewish life and uh, world jewelry or things of that nature, and they'd like me to comment on it, I really would like to hear from you, because this enables me to choose those subjects which the uh, re- uh, listeners find of interest. So I'll repeat now, and I'll try to remember every week to repeat my email address. It's jmshapiro at yahoo.com. The J.M. Shapiro is spelled J-A-Y-M-S-H-A-P-I-R-O at yahoo.com. So I really appreciate it. If you have any thoughts you want to share with me, please write to me and I'll respond as best as I can. The first thing I want to talk about on this seminar program is our relationship with the United States in particular, our relationship with U.S. Congress. On Tuesday, April 25th, the United States House of Representatives passed H.R. 311. It was more than a salute to Israel on her 75th birthday. It was a solid, resounding show of support for the Jewish state. 400 U.S. representatives signed that uh, uh, proposal. Or, I'm sorry, it's really not a proposal, I guess. It, it's, uh, it's a resolution. 
It's a sign that things are not as bad as we're being led to believe between Jerusalem and Washington. The vote for the uh, signing of this was 400 to 19 in support of Israel. Now, right now we're going through a period of Israel bashing. So you get a vote for 400 to 19. This is about as close as to unanimous vote as any lover of Israel could hope for. Only one Republican actually voted against the resolution. That uh, person happens to be a staunch isolationist. He's Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky, and he simply could not vote in favor of the resolution because he's opposed to all kinds of things having to do with foreign countries and isolationists. The 17 other people who voted no were, as we can expect, composed of the entire infamous Progressive Caucus, uh, which is a a group of women um, primarily, and plus one other, a woman named Betty McCallum of Minnesota. It's important to take in the enormity of a vote like this, especially the fact that right now, Congress is very factionalized. The, the House of Representatives is controlled by the Republicans, the presidency by, the, uh, by Democrats, and the Senate by the uh, Democrats. And right now there is a lot of argument taking place. Uh, I saw it on television this week concerning the Supreme Court. Now, I don't want to go into the details, but it seems that there the uh, Democrats have some kind of issues with the Supreme Court, and more or less uh, accusing some of the uh, Supreme Court justices as having other interests uh, in uh, and when they're making their decisions. But that that's an internal American problem. I don't want to comment on it. I just want to take note of the fact that sitting here in Israel and watching what happens in the United States, we take note of the fact that's in the Supreme Court right now is an issue, which it wasn't, let's say, a year ago. Now, the uh, just a few weeks ago, the American president, Joe Biden, publicly dressed down our prime minister, Netanyahu, saying that he will not invite this Israeli prime minister to the White House anytime soon because the, the White House disagrees with Netanyahu's push for judicial reform. Now, that's interesting. We've had something like five elections in two and a half years, and generally, when a government is finally formed, the American president invites the prime minister, and he knows uh, uh, Netanyahu is well known to Joe Biden. He chose not to invite him because he wants to express his uh, disagreement with the push being made now by the majority for judicial reform here in Israel. But Soon thereafter, nearly the entire House of Representatives, including, of course, by people who support Biden uh, and, and signified their support for Israel. Now, there is no doubt there are pockets in the halls of U.S. power where Israel is reviled, like the so-called Progressive Caucus. They're really anti-Israel, and they've said so. But at this stage, they're a small group, very little influence. They're colorful, and they make a lot of noise. They speak in all kinds of sound bites. Uh, they're not very powerful, thank heaven. 
they, it's interesting how they speak in sound bites. You know, we watch the news in the United States, and you very rarely hear any of these loudmouth congressmen make a long statement that requires intelligent thought. They make sound bites and slogans. So, on the one hand, both in Israel and the United States, the Jewish world is embroidered with examples of tensions that are growing and support for Israel is waning some places. We're bombarded with pleas to fight on Israel's behalf in the United States. It's, uh, the, we want the Jewish organization <coughs> to speak out on Israel's behalf. There are a lot of heads of Jewish organizations who have publicly spoken out against the uh, changes that we're trying to make here in Israel for judicial reform. They're being interviewed and they speak against our government. But um, that th these are the facts um, of life. But along comes something like this resolution by the House of Representatives, uh, which more or less proves that the situation is not as bad as portrayed in the Jewish and Israeli media. Now, why is there a reason for this stark disparity between the message and the reality? I believe it's not simply a message misread of the political agenda. It is a time-honored strategy of how to motivate and how to raise money for any particular cause. Now, crisis is the greatest of all motivational tools. Crisis activates people to get involved. Crisis activates, uh, stimulates contributions. Because what happens is that when things are going well, people are complacent. They don't give. Uh, people do not give not of their time, not of their energy, and not of their money when things are complacent. These, these are the facts of life. The, now, I'm not suggesting there has not been a decline in the perception of the essential role of Israel in the professional relationship between Israel and the United States. It's simply not as bad as it's often portrayed, and clearly this resolution by the House shows that it's not, uh, it's not such bad as we thought it might be. This House resolution by, proclaims four important U.S. policies. It encourages deepening U.S.-Israel cooperation on every level, especially security. And it also encourages expansion of the Abraham Accords, the um, agreements with, that Israel has made with a number of Muslim countries. The, uh, according to this uh, resolution, and I quote, the expansion and strengthening of the Abraham Accords to urge other nations to normalize relations with Israel and ensure that existing agreements reap tangible security and economic benefits for the citizens of these countries and all peoples of the region. That is what it, that is what it says in this House resolution. So it encourages the United States and Israel, and again I quote, to continue to deepen and expand bilateral cooperation 
across the full spectrum of economic, security, and civilian issues. It also expresses continued support for security assistance to Israel as outlined in the United States-Israel Memorandum of Understanding to ensure that Israel can defend itself by itself. And finally, it also calls the support of Israel's robust involvement as an active member of the community of nations and, and to benefit Israel and the United States as partners who share common values and a commitment to democracy. So these are the wording, this is the wording of this resolution 311, and it's really very encouraging. The, uh, it's interesting, by the way, that every five years, Congress passes a resolution similar to this one. This year was a little different. And you have to you have to read the text, and you realize it's not just simply a little different, but if you go through the whole text, it's a lot different. Why? Because this year's resolution did not mention a two-state solution with the Palestinians. In fact, in this resolution, there is no mention at all of the Palestinians. And while it does mention the countries in the region with whom Israel has agreements, like Egypt and Jordan, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, it does not mention the 1993 Oslo Accords with the Palestinian Authority. And that is really something. And it, it, it's interesting, the, the, um, Israel has made within the last five years, agreements with Jordan, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, which no one could even imagine even 10 years ago. But it's really living, I guess you can call it almost miraculous time. There was a draft of the proposed language of this, uh, this House uh, 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 bill but uh, in the end, not put into this resolution. In other words, the, the, there was a draft and uh, that, that mentioned the Palestinians, but apparently a lot of the members of Congress didn't want to sign it until that was re removed. That draft is very similar to all kind of resolutions that were previously made supporting a negotiated settlement leading to a sustainable two-state solution with the democratic Jewish state of Israel and a demilitarized democratic Palestinian state living by side in peace and security. That's the wording that's been in previous resolutions. Now, apparently the members of the Congress uh, who are aware of uh, current events realize the idea of a demilitarized democratic Palestinian state living side by side in peace and security is something that's way, way down the road. So the, some, it turns out that some democratic representatives wanted this language and they wrote a letter to, the, to that effect. The important point here is that when the language was not, not incorporated into House Resolution 311, those Democrats did not walk 
back their support. In other words, there were members, Democratic members of Congress who wanted the Palestinians to be included in the resolution. The final draft of the resolution did not include the Palestinians, and still these Democrats supported uh, the uh, resolution. Now, the Republicans in Congress simply do not, uh, like the vast majorities of Israelis, they simply do not have faith as in the Palestinians as partners to peace at this stage of history. And despite all their disagreement and differences on so many issues, Democrats and Republicans join together in their support of Israel. And that is really important. So even now, even though we have some Jewish uh, uh, organizations who are not happy with Israel because the government is trying to push through changes in the power of Israel's Supreme Court, the American Congress at the same time is overwhelmingly in support of Israel as the friend of the uh, United States in the Middle East. And that is really important. And since I mentioned the proposed changes in the electoral system here in Israel, I want to say a few more words about it without going into too much details. One of the key arguments behind the proposals for what some refer to as a coup and others as the reform of our system of government is that the changes in question will strengthen the power of the public's elected representatives and consequently the power of the public itself vis-a-vis unelected officials and bureaucrats such as judges, legal advisors, and civil servants. Now, the, um, it, it, you know, the, who represents the public? We have a very serious problem here in Israel. We do not have local representation. So when you go to the polls in Israel, you get a real bargain. You vote for a party list. The party list can have up to 120 names. Uh, is because uh, there's 120 seats in the Knesset. So if a party, for example, got 50% of the votes, they get 50% of the seats. 25% of the votes, they get 25% of the seats. But the, the uh, voter is not presented re- really given any choice of who's going to be in the list that they're going to vote for. It's a, uh, I always like to refer to it as a great electoral bargain. You vote one vote, you get 120 names for your one vote. Truth of the matter is, you don't know who these people are. The best you know is maybe the top three or four, maybe up to the tenth person on the list. Everybody knows, for example, the head of the Likud list is uh, Binyamin Netanyahu. But uh, name name number 25 on the list, I absolutely guarantee you that nobody in the country can name it off the top of his head. So we have a bad system. But what we're trying to do... So that, that's a problem unto itself. But we're trying, right now, the Supreme Court has uh, a lot of uh, power, and the, the, the major problem within the Supreme Court is that members choose the, the, those who will come into the court themselves. In other words, there's a committee made up, I think, of nine people. Uh, 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 three of the people on the committee that choose new members of the court are members of sitting members of the court right at the moment. Now, in order to get a, a vote, you have to get uh, five out of nine. Now, it turns out that 
at least at the moment, two other members of this nine-member committee are lawyers from the Bar Association. The problem with that is, among other things, is that these members of the Bar Association are lawyers who maybe will represent cases in front of Israel's Supreme Court. So it's very important to them that they have judges who will favor them. So the the there's a tilting of the uh, uh, selection committee toward uh, 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 choosing and nominating judges who agree pretty much with the judge, the judges who already are sitting in the court. That's a major problem. So there's been uh, there have been demonstrations in the streets and all kinds of noise about the fact that the government is trying to change that and to broaden the committee so that the judges themselves, the sitting judges, don't have the overruling vote of who they're, who's going to else is get onto the court. That's a major problem, but that's the bottom line of the of the issues that's taking place now here in Israel. I just wanted to. Tell upon that. I'll probably have to repeat it every, every one of my programs as long as the demonstrations continue in the streets here in Israel. Uh, as I, I think I mentioned previously on one of my programs, I'm in the favor of demonstrations because I have a grandson who uh, imports Israeli flags from uh, China where they're made, and he sells to both sides of the demonstrations, the pro-change and the anti-change. So I'm in favor of demonstrations, even though they're held pretty much in my neighborhood. They're a lot noisy, but every time I see somebody waving the Israeli flag, I get happy because my grandson's making money. Having said all that, until next time, take care of yourselves. Jay Shapiro, signing off. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.